Hi everybody, this is Jimmy DeYoung Jr. and welcome to Prophecy Today Weekend, where my brother Rick and I, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This ministry was started over 20 years ago by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. This is the beginning of Passion Week, and we'll be talking about that later on in the program. But Rick, as I look at the questions that we have for our broadcast partners today, we are quickly approaching the rapture of the church. Oh, for sure, Jimmy. So many things taking place in the world right now that are setting the stage for that to be fulfilled. And as we do look towards Easter and what we both consider the most important event in all of history, those events did take place in the city of Jerusalem. And we're reminded that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And as we're to find out later on in this show, there are many things taking place in Israel and in Jerusalem that we do need to be praying for. Well, I'm excited about our program today. We do have our regulars, uh, Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, and Winky Madad will be joining us this week again because of what is taking place within the Israeli government. Uh, we do have Tom Meyer back talking about the 75th anniversary of the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls and why is that important to us as Christians. Mike Gendron will be here talking about the one world religion that's coming into place, the woman that rides the beast and who that is, and uh, why the Pope is getting involved with Russia and Ukraine in the war and the conflict that is going on there. And of course, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung with the Legacy Series, speaking about Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, and where the first prophecy in the Bible pertaining to the coming Messiah and what his role would be. Well, we need to get started, Rick, so let's get started with Ken Timmerman. Ken Timmerman joins us today. He is our expert on geopolitical affairs. He joins us every week, and he brings some great insight to the table. Ken, thank you for joining us this week. Rick, it's uh, my pleasure as always. The first place we go to this week is the UN has suspended Russia from the human rights body. Can you tell us what that means? It doesn't mean an awful lot. Uh, the UN Human Rights Council had notable members such as Cuba, the Islamic State of Iran, Russia, China, Yemen, places that are clearly not very respectful of international standard of human rights. So for Russia to be suspended from this body is a political gesture made by the United States. Now, after the U.S. orchestrated this vote, the Russians said, hey, uh, we don't like the U.N. Human Rights Council anyway. We're resigning. So this really has no practical impact whatsoever kind of brings into question the validity of these global organizations. Uh, I know that uh, there was a resolution in the Congress uh, expressing unequivocal support for NATO, and notably, a few Republicans did not vote for that. How do these global organizations work within uh, the system, the geopolitical system that we have? First, the United Nations, uh, created obviously after World War II, has been notoriously incapable uh, with very, very few exceptions of preventing conflict, which was its original goal. Uh, it's, you have Russia that sits on the Security Council, as we do. They are a permanent member of the Security Council. They can veto any Security Council resolution. And it's only the Security Council that can take action against a country for having violated world peace. It was the Security Council, for example, that voted to punish Saddam Hussein for invading Kuwait. That was one time that the UN actually did something concrete and real because the Russians voted with us. The Chinese voted with us. Here, 
uh, in Ukraine, obviously, the U.N. Security Council can do nothing because Russia is a, a permanent member. And so the U.S. resorts to things like the Human Rights Council, to the General Assembly, whatever. And remember, in the General Assembly, there are more countries that hate us than countries that actually support us. This goes uh, along with a general trend. It seems like America has been weakening itself on the foreign scene for a while now, beginning with Afghanistan. Can you give us an internal assessment of how this administration, specifically President Biden, has been handling the Ukraine-Russian war? Well, look, I, I think Biden gets a C- minus for his actions so far. Uh, and, and the only reason he doesn't get an F is because the, uh, the administration is shipping some weapons to Ukraine. They're doing it slowly. They're dribbling it out. Uh, they could have done it much, much more quickly. They could have, uh, for example, when Poland had said, hey, we've got these uh, 29, we've got uh, 39, I think it is, MiG-29s we can, we can uh, send to Ukraine. And by the way, the pilots are already here <laughs> flying the airplanes and getting them ready to take home. Uh, and the U.S. vetoed that because they did not want to uh, poke Putin in the eye. Uh, you know, there, there was um, um, one TV commentator who said that Vladimir Putin lives rent free inside Joe Biden's brain. And what he meant by that is that uh, Biden is terrified of Putin. He is deathly afraid of Putin. And Putin sees this. Putin understands that. He understands that Biden is weak and afraid. And that's why he moved against Ukraine. He tested this out early on in the Biden administration when he did actually two um, buildups on the border of Ukraine, military buildups. And on both times, Biden uh, gesticulated. He said we were going to do things militarily. We would prevent Putin from doing this militarily. All the while, we didn't move any troops. We didn't reinforce any bases. We, we didn't send Ukraine any military equipment. Putin realized that Biden was just talking through his hat. He's a paper tiger. So I think from that point of view, Biden has done in irreparable damage to America's reputation because he did the one thing you cannot do as a leader of the free world. He made threats he had no intention of carrying out. Well, there has been relative worldwide condemnation of this war in Russia. But like you said, some people are kind of sitting on the sideline, and especially people in the Middle East, countries in the Middle East are kind of sitting on the sideline and thinking, I'm not sure if we want to condemn Russia or not. Maybe we strengthen our ties with Moscow as the U.S. influence fades in the area. Well, Rick, our listeners, I think, are particularly attuned to this old, uh, very well-known Middle Eastern saying we favor the strong horse. The United States today is not the strong horse. Uh, we are the weak horse. And they see Russia as the strong horse, not because Russia is winning in Ukraine. They're not winning in Ukraine. Uh, I believe Russia is losing this war and it will be a disaster for Putin personally and politically. But they still see Russia as the strong horse because they are resisting this attempt by the United States and our allies to put pressure on Russia and that pressure does not yet seem to be having any practical impact on Putin's actions. Russia has been wooing countries like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, even Israel for many, many years under Putin. They have strong relationships with those countries. They've been supplying military equipment to U.S. client states such as Saudi Arabia extraordinarily. I think those countries see the United States under Biden as an increasingly 
fickle partner, a partner that could turn on them in an instant, as the Saudis in particular are very aware of this because Biden despises Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and from the very beginning of his presidency has taken measures to isolate Saudi Arabia. He's pulled out Patriot missile batteries from Saudi Arabia as they were getting attacked by the Iranians with the Iranian drones and missiles. Uh, and so the Saudis in particular are very concerned about the U.S. Uh, as an ally. And I think they see Russia and China as counterparts who could eventually fill the gap if the U.S. pulls further away from Saudi Arabia. Well, one Middle Eastern country that is unabashedly uh, pro-Russian and is supporting Putin right now is Iran. And they're actually holding trade conferences in the midst of this Ukrainian crisis, aren't they? Yes. And this is a very different relationship from what we just talked to. Uh, the, the, the Saudis, the Emiratis, uh, they are looking to Russia as eventually a partner who could replace the United States if the U.S. welches on our commitments to them. The Iranians are very different. The Iranian doesn't have other partners. This is the rogues hanging together. This is this Iran-China-Russia alliance we, we've talked about so often on this program. And so this week, uh, guess what? You had 70 Iranian businesses, big businesses, going to Russia. They were meeting with Russia bus Russian businessmen at a trade fair. And there's going to be more of these trade fairs to enhance, increase the Russia-Iran trade in technology, in minerals, in equipment. Uh, you're going to see the Russians building factories in Iran. And you will see, in general, uh, Iran opening its markets in a big way to Russian businesses. Now, that's not going to make up for what the Russians have lost uh, in their trade with Western Europe in particular, but it is still a good market for, for the Russians, and they know it, and they're going to milk it for everything it's worth. Well, one last question. We'll move away from Russia and the Middle East. Many people are saying in the United States here that we're going to have a rightward shift um, away from the progressive liberal wing in the next midterm elections. I'm wondering, is that something that's going to be a worldwide trend now? It, are we going to see more of that in Europe? Well, I think what we are going to see, uh, and I think Donald Trump helped to bring this about, is a recognition that countries in Europe uh, and elsewhere need to put their own interests first. And this notion that uh, somehow Brussels, if you're in Europe, is the place where your rules and your laws are going to be made instead of your national capital, that has become increasingly unpopular. That's why the UK uh, succeeded in Brexit, in leaving the European Union. That's why there has long been a move in France to leave the European Union. Now, I don't think that's going to happen, but you have nationalist governments in Poland and in Hungary, hated, by the way, by the Democrat Party, as we mentioned earlier, here in the United States. So I think that move towards nationalism, populism is a long-term trend. As people saw during the four years of the Trump presidency, it did not mean that you became isolationist. The United States did not become isolationist under President Trump, but we did become America first. So that's what you're going to see uh, in the coming years as more and more people realize that you can actually put your national interests ahead of these supranational organizations, whether it's the United Nations, the European Union, or others. Well, excellent insight, Ken. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, you do a wonderful job of explaining what's going on in the world around us. Thanks so much, Rick. It's always a pleasure and uh, always new.
Thank you, Ken Timmerman. And we will see, according to the Bible, a one-world leader that will come on the scene in the future that will put himself first. We got to take a break, and when we come back, our Middle East news update with David Dolan. I'm Liz Kramer with Mission Network News. On Sunday, the Pakistani parliament brought a no-confidence motion to unseat Prime Minister Imran Khan. But Nehemiah with FMI says Khan's allies blocked the vote. Khan dissolved parliament and called for new elections. But yesterday, Pakistan's Supreme Court ruled that these actions were unconstitutional. Parliament must reconvene and hold the no-confidence vote on Saturday. Pray for stability in Pakistan and ask God to comfort many with the hope of Jesus. And some of the world's most difficult places to follow Christ are in the Middle East, North Africa region. The Program for Theological Education by Extension, or PTEE, trains church leaders in these countries. Executive Director Victor Sadek says by studying online, believers can avoid unwanted attention, which often leads to persecution. The ministry is building a mobile platform in 2022. Pray the Lord would bring PTEE the workers and funding it needs for the project. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back here to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, this is the segment of the program where we take a look at our Middle East news update. And to do that, we have our regular broadcast partner, Dave Dolan. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be with you, Rick. Well, Dave, with all the different things that are taking place in the world right now, Israel now has a crisis politically, and that's pretty much at the top of our headlines today. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, Rick, we've known all along that it was an extremely narrow coalition, just a one-vote majority in the 120-seat Knesset, 61 out of 120, that it was a very unusual coalition, the most weird even coalition Israel's ever had, and that it includes three left-wing parties, one an Arab Islamic party, uh, and the other two Jewish parties, Meretz and Labor, that are very left-wing. And yet the prime minister is from the Yamina party, which means right or right-wing. That's very popular in Judea and Samaria. It's a settler's party, basically. The prime minister wears a kippah. So uh, to put all these people from left to right together was very, very difficult. And the only thing, as we said at the time 10 months ago, the only thing they shared in common was a hatred for Bibi Netanyahu. So they joined together. But uh, on Wednesday, one of the coalition members, a member of the prime minister's own party, in fact, she's the coalition whip uh, for the party, Edith Silman. She's a young Orthodox woman uh, from Judea. 
And um, she has been known to be, as is everybody in the prime minister's, I think, eight-man party, eight-person party, uh, unhappy with um, a lot of the policies that have been adopted, and especially over uh, building in Judea and Samaria. The right doesn't feel like they've carried on. The new government has carried on with that properly. They don't like uh, some other things. It's uh, sort of stand on Iran isn't near as strong as it was before, at least publicly. They don't like that. There's other issues. But officially, she left because of Hamas in the hospital. Now, what is that? That's non-kosher for Passover food and drink being brought into public hospitals. And the um, health minister, Horowitz, who's a member of the left-wing Merits Party, sent a letter this week, early this week, uh, saying that hospitals must allow any food to come in that anybody wants because some of the patients are Arabs or they're Christians or they're Muslims or whatever, and they don't abide by the Passover rules. Well, that was too much for her. She said that we couldn't go, couldn't go along with that. And many others on the uh, on the right and the religious parties are very upset over it as well. And so she said, I'm quitting. She issued a letter to that effect. Nobody saw it coming, they said. But it turns out she was consulting with some other members of her own party who are also very unhappy. And now a second uh, member of the uh, prime minister's party has issued an ultimatum, three demands, all to do with the settlements, with the restoration of electricity to some that have been cut off by the government. Some other issues, I won't go into all of that, but he's issued that and is threatening to leave. And uh, Rick, what it means really, and I know the parliamentary system is a little hard uh, maybe for people in the United States to understand, it's very different. But you have to have 61 votes to pass anything or do anything. And now with it being 60-60, the um, opposition can pretty much block anything the government does or tries to do. So it becomes a very ineffective, weak government. But for Bibi Netanyahu to return as prime minister, it would need more than the 60 opposition plus one Uh, that exists right now because uh, eight of those opposition members are Arab parties that are very left-wing and would not sit in a Netanyahu government. So basically, he would have to get the Yumina party, Netanyahu would, to come to his side, which of course would oust Bennett as prime minister, the head of that party. So, So that's problematic. And he'd have to get possibly the blue and white party to join in as well under Benny Gantz. And uh, it's very, very complicated. The coalition accord uh, that was formed 10 months ago says that if the government is forced out of office, the interim government will be headed by the foreign minister, Yair Lapid. So we would go from Bennett to Lapid, and then possibly if we have new elections or if Netanyahu can form a government without elections to uh, the third prime minister in just the space of a few months. So Everybody's got a lot to lose except Bibi Netanyahu. He's hoping he can come back. And at a rally in Jerusalem Wednesday night, he said he would come back. He called on all the right wing members of the current uh, coalition to come home and uh, for Bennett to go home. So that's the situation as it stands right now. 
for those in the United States who don't necessarily understand the parliamentary system, you do vote for a party, not necessarily a person. Now, that the head of that party uh, would be the person who gets a chance to form the government. And this coalition was kind of always destined for, for failure. You said it had a hodgepodge of people kind of grouped together, not necessarily people that are ideologically aligned. And isn't it true, David, that the Likud party, which is Netanyahu's party, is the largest party, and it's the party that received the most votes, but they couldn't form a government. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely correct. Yes, by far they were the largest party in the last election, uh, about twice as many votes as the nearest party. But yes, the coalition system is a, a patchwork. You have to get a number of parties together, unless, miraculously, one party takes 61 seats itself. Well, that has never happened in Israel's history. So we've always had coalition governments, but they're normally, you know, a coalition of left and center parties or a coalition of right and religious and center parties, one or the other. Never this broad coalition. Well, we have had, I have to say, emergency coalition unity governments in the late 80s when inflation was running at a thousand percent in Israel. By the way, if any American wants to know what real heavy inflation is like and how terrible it is, I can tell them all about it because you may remember that too. The shekel was being devalued twice a day, every day. It was an absurd time, but they formed a emergency coalition, broad coalition then, but it's only happened in times of war and that and didn't last very long. This one was had one thing in common, hatred of Netanyahu. Now that he's gone 10 months and the charges against him, criminal charges have been reduced and et cetera, people are more yearning for him to come back. And um, Bennett just can't do much because of this broad coalition. So, But yes, in the Israeli system, that's how it works. And uh, the, the strength is that a government can be removed at any time. In other words, if you only have 40% support in the country, as uh, a president of the United States currently in office has, you could be voted out uh, by the, um, in this case, the Senate and Congress, but in the case of Israel, by the Knesset. And that's true in Britain, and that's true in Canada and Germany, and most countries have parliamentary systems. The strength is that, but the weakness is also that that uh, the government can virtually fall at any time for virtually any reason, even hummets in a hospital. So it's it's the best system and it's the worst system both at the same time. It's ironic that Prime Minister Bennett had recently kind of uh, upped his profile internationally. He, he was working as a conduit between uh, Vladimir Putin and Zelensky from Ukraine. And it's kind of interesting that uh, some may feel like his international diplomacy, he kind of forgot what was going on in his own backyard. Well, Rick, the Jerusalem Post on Wednesday had a scathing editorial about that topic. And it said while Bennett was away solving everybody else's problems, he wasn't paying any attention to the growing unrest in his own party. Uh, again, this isn't new. He's known for months that uh, many were unhappy. He knows that polls show most of his voters are unhappy with this government. And, uh, you know, so it's a tenuous situation. And, uh, and yet so far it's held together 10 months, but it really does look like it's the end of the road, and we're going to be having either um, a new government formed by Netanyahu 
or more likely another round of elections and uh, hopefully not another stalemate. But this would be the fifth uh, round of elections in just over two years, Rick, if they come. So nobody wants that. And especially right now, given the very dramatic security situation in Israel and in the region and with war raging in Europe. Well, the psalmist encourages us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and that's something that we should be doing right now more than ever, especially among this instability, correct? Absolutely. This is the time. It's always the right time, as you say, but uh, we have the real high prospect of a repeat war. And let's not forget that uh, over 4,000 rockets were fired last May, and we had a lot of buildings hit. We had uh, rioting in many, many cities and towns, and uh, it was a terrible situation. We don't want to see that again. But of course, this time it could, with all the other tensions going on and with the Biden administration so weak and with the trouble in Europe, it could well easily escalate, they're saying, the authorities are saying, into a full Iran-Israel war involving Syria and Lebanon and etc. So definitely a time to pray. Well, David, thank you so much for your report this week, and we will keep an eye on it. And uh, I'm sure you're going to keep your finger on the pulse there, and you'll update us again next week. So we appreciate it. I'll keep watching. God bless, Rick. We're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today, but when we return, we're going to have Winky Madad with us. Stay tuned right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. We're back here on Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, right now we are looking at events that are taking place in Israel, uh, especially the political scene there as it is changing rapidly. And we're going to go to our correspondent that we have there. He lives in the area of Judea and Samaria. He is actually the former mayor of Shiloh, and he still lives in Shiloh. Winky Madad. Winky, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, Winky, we just discussed with Dave Dolan a little bit about what's taking place in there in Israel with your political situation, but I really wanted to get you on the line today and get your uh, assessment of the situation and the, I guess, the the status of your government right now. Well, the news is, of course, is that one member of the ruling coalition, a female MK by the name of Edith Silman, who actually was a senior or in a senior position of the Amina party within the coalition. She was uh, the whip in the parliament and I think a committee chairwoman as as well. Um, And she announced that she could no longer uh, stay in the coalition. 
policies, especially those related to what she called uh, the Jewishness of the state of Israel. In other words, issues of religion and, and social elements within the state of a Jewish character. And of course, that dropped the ruling coalition one vote, and that brought it to 60, which means, as everybody I hope by now knows, our Knesset is 120 members, which means that technically it's possible that they don't have a majority on certain types of votes. In other words, they would be stalled either passing legislation or, in the near future, perhaps a vote of confidence and one or two other members of Knesset coming across will bring down the government finally. Oh, Winky, just to educate our listeners, you would be living in the area, we call it Judea and Samaria. It's the area that Israel took in the Six-Day War in 1967, and we believe it's part of Israel, as I know that you do. Um, and the current prime minister, the uh, the head of the Yamina party, uh, Naftali Bennett, this was his party. And it seems like she is saying that, and basically this is what you just said as well, it seems like he is backing off of his commitment to Jewish sovereignty in that land. Is that uh, is that why she left? Is this just playing politics? What's going on there? Well, uh, until she fully comes out and explains exactly what she meant by her brief statement, it is obvious that there's been extreme pressure from the right uh, and those people within the Jewish Home Party, which had been part of Yamina originally before we got into this mess about two years ago, that issues of continuing to construct in the Jewish communities across the Green Line, especially hooking up uh, the newer communities with electricity and other elements of uh, infrastructure, not mentioning the words uh, occupied the West Bank or West Bank, which Bennett did. And I think he, we even discussed it on the program. And perhaps identifying one of his close aides as a person who's trying to pull him over at least to the center, if not the center left, all have caused uh, unease. And with the backdrop of the recent terror upsurge, and the fact that this government, of course, is together, basically, with an Arab party that has strong Bedouin base of voting, those elements within Yamina who were not at all happy began to realize that it's getting worse and worse, and perhaps they should look for the alternative, which would be either setting up a new party, which would be traditional in Israel, but not get them anywhere fast, or simply find out if the Likud is willing to take them back. So you mentioned the Likud, and the head of the Likud party, if I'm not mistaken, is Benjamin Netanyahu. Does that mean that uh, we may see a reemergence of the former prime minister? My short answer is yes. The longer answer is, at the present moment, the Knesset is in recess, the spring recess over the uh, Passover holiday and uh, Memorial Day and Independence Day. And so you cannot table a motion to dissolve the Knesset or to vote the government out of, of no confidence. So there'll be, uh, for another month or so, there's going to be a lot of maneuvering. It's already started. For example, one person in the party, uh, Mr. Shikley, a letter was given with intent to declare him a uh, breakaway. That means that if it is accepted by the Knesset, he cannot run 
Whitley could, or any other party, in the next elections. He would have to set up his own party, which means he needs to get in by a 3% threshold, which is difficult. So already we see maneuverings, including uh, the uh, Minister of the Treasurer giving to Yamina MKs what they wanted two to three months ago. Now it's payoff time, so he's opening up his pockets. It, it can be quite bizarre for an outsider, but this is the way our politics go. Well, I think we would probably be here all day if we wanted to get a a super strong grasp on Israeli politics, but I think you give us an overview and we trust your assessment of the situation, so we appreciate you giving that to us. This kind of instability in the government comes at a precarious time, but then again, when's not a precarious time in Israel as far as security is concerned? And uh, some of Israel's neighbors, I saw a report, and I'd just love to get your comment on this. The Egyptian Foreign Ministry condemns, quote, the Israeli escalation in the Palestinian territories in recent days, especially recent visits by Jews to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem's old city. Have you heard about that story? And, and what do you think about that condemnation by the Egyptian foreign ministry? Well, actually, I hadn't heard the uh, relationship or the connection between Egypt and those ridiculous charges that we've, I think, gone over many times. A, a quick jump back about 80 years for a quick history lesson, the 1929 horrific riots that caused the deaths, I think about 119 or so Jews during a two and a half week period, was because uh, the Mufti said the Jews want to pray at the Western Wall and take it over on the way to the Temple Mount. Uh, so, in other words, this is an old story. If, if it wasn't for the Temple Mount, they, we'd have problems praying at the Western Wall in parentheses, which we couldn't do between 1948 and 1967 because Jordan didn't fulfill its part of the armistice agreements. But, but what I'm trying to say here, and I hope our listeners understand, is that they are always, almost always, I don't, I don't want to be 100%, almost always looking for excuses to not like us or to do us injury or even worse. And it's, it's a sad part of the conflict because the Instead of looking for solutions, they're always looking for some other way not to like us, not to make peace, and not to negotiate, and not to compromise. And that psychological, or whatever you want to call it, background to what actually goes on the ground is really, really harmful to the Arab world. Because as, we, as we've also discussed, we see Arab countries who are at peace with Israel or have agreement to trade agreements and everything is okay. We can get along. So um, um, the bottom line, it's unfortunate that Egypt has joined Jordan and the Palestinian Authority in playing this game of Jews don't belong on the Temple Mount when they do. And I hope uh, they will learn a lesson because Israel is intent upon providing freedom of at least access and as much as possible worship to everybody even within the constraints that is accepted upon itself, which sometimes I'm not personally happy with, but I have to explain everything about the country, and that's my insight into the issue. Well, final question, Winky, and I know Passover is coming up. Uh, as you're listening to this, it'll be less than a week away. Passover is coming up, but Ramadan has already started. And this is another reason that this is such a precarious time in Israel, as those two events are occurring at the same time this year. Just wondering, how has Ramadan been going, and has it 
Uh, I know last week we talked about an escalation of terrorism. Has that died down at all? Well, the terrorism is, has, has been very uh, significantly reduced, partly because perhaps that was an aberration in, in those three instances. Hor- horrific, of course, because 11 people were killed. But perhaps an aberration. And Israeli army and uh, GSS service and other uh, security services are very much on the job, arresting people, looking for people, questioning people, interrogating them. I hope that works. Uh, But as for the Ramadan, it's been, unfortunately, too normal in the sense of around uh, 9, 10 o'clock in the evening after they finish their dinner, after fasting all day, scores of young Muslim men come out and try to prove, if I can use that term, their uh, audacity and their willingness to sacrifice themselves. And they're usually late-aged teenagers or young men. And they throw objects at the police and they shoot off firecrackers and even try to get into fist fights with them. Uh, It doesn't work too well because these guys know how to fight back. Just one last word, perhaps is that actually there's a lot of pressure from Arab shop owners in the area uh, not to do that because they can't sell their products to the Arab uh, population who come out and walk the streets at night because uh, it's not good for business and it's interfering. So maybe in another week or so, everything will really, really quiet down, but I really don't know. Well, Winky, I mentioned to Dave Dolan uh, that the psalmist tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and we are praying for the peace of Jerusalem and the peace in all of Israel, and we hope that you continue to stay safe, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Well, I join in that prayer as well, and again, thank you very much for having me on the program, and good night to you and our listeners. Well, here on Prophecy Today, not only do we take a look at politically what's happening in Israel, but we do also, and we've started doing this with our friend, uh, Professor Tom Myers. Tom, welcome to the program today. Great to be here. Yes, and uh, we have started looking at historical, archaeological sites in Israel uh, you've been there. You, you've taught this at Shasta Bible College in California, and now you're moving to the Ark in Kentucky. You're moving to the Ark, and uh, you'll be working there, and you're also known as, as the Bible Memory Man. Uh, but, Tom, today I have you on the program because I want to talk about we're celebrating the 75th anniversary of the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, First of all, the Dead Sea Scrolls are over about 2,000 years old. Give us some history as we understand the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls are the oldest copies of the scriptures that we have in the entire world, Jimmy. Uh, Save for one example, we have an amulet, a charm, a talisman that was worn on the necklace from the time of Hezekiah from 700 B.C. that has... The ironic blessing from number six. Remember that one? Mm-hmm, the Lord yes. bless thee and keep thee. Yep. So we have that. But excluding that, the Dead Sea Scrolls are the oldest copies of the Old Testament in the entire world. And like you rightly said, they were written a little bit before and a little bit after the time of the Lord Jesus. Tell us about Qumran and where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Qumran is located at the northwestern tip of the Dead Sea. Uh, just about uh, half a day's walk or so south of Jericho. And that 
entryway right there is the sneaky back door into Israel in antiquity. That's the way the Joshua and the Israelites <laughs> came in at the conquest in 1400 BC. So because that overlooks that sneaky back way in, that kind of like a highway 80, like a main route going mm. to the main place, there's a huge watchtower there from 700 BC, also from the time of Hezekiah. But in the first century, to make a long story short, the sect of Jews who were very interested in the end times moved out of Jerusalem which they thought to be wicked and corrupt. And so they moved out to the wilderness. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. And while they were waiting, they copied the scriptures. Mm. This sect was the Essenes, and uh, they went down there, uh, and they were a monastic society, pretty much. I mean, it was all men that moved down there, and and we know about the history. So uh, they copied the scriptures. They were down there, um, and for the most part, they hid them in the caves because of why? Well, because of the idea that the, the Romans were coming and that in order to uh, preserve the Word of God and to hide it for future generations, they were going to kind of like the temple treasures, right? Right. Before the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. and the other one in A.D. 70, they hid a lot of the temple goodies in the wilderness and in and around Jerusalem and Jericho, according to the Copper Scroll, mm. with the intent to go back and get those goodies once the Roman, the oppressors left. So that could have been what they were thinking, that they're taking the, the most holiest thing in the world, right. the word of the living God, and they're hiding it and protecting it. So when the bad guys leave, in case they get overrun, they can go get those texts. But of course, that never happened. Now, we know that they were found by a Bedouin back in 1948. At the same time, they came to light that Israel became a nation again. But tell us, Tom, about the scrolls. What's there uh, in, in these scrolls? Well, what makes these things so unique, among other things, Jimmy, is that before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the oldest copy of the Old Testament in the entire world was from about 1000 A.D., and it's called the Aleppo Codex. Mm. Think of that. Just 75 years ago, 76 years ago, the oldest Bible in the world that we had was a thousand years after Jesus. But when they found these Dead Sea Scrolls, Jimmy, which is a little bit before and a little bit after the time of the Lord Jesus, and they lined them up with the Aleppo Codex, the Hebrew Old Testament, they're 99.9% the same. Yeah, an Israeli child, you know, school kid today can go up and read. It's the same Hebrew. Basically, they can read these Old Testament 800 and 900 manuscripts that are at the Shrine of the Book Museum in the city of Jerusalem. Tom, when we look at these, and we know that there are so many portions uh, on, uh, of the scriptures that are there. I think Isaiah was the most copied book that was found out of the scrolls. What what does this help us to do as we are looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls and celebrating the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls that came to light 75 years ago? Well, we all know that the Word of God is totally sufficient, and we do not need archaeology to prove that the Bible is true. Mm. But as we've demonstrated again and again, that every single time that archaeologists find something, whether it be a, a coin or whether it be a, a seal or whether in this instance is find of epic proportions, the <laughs> yeah. Dead Sea Scroll, every time they right. find something, yep. it demonstrates to us the reliability and the accuracy of God's Word. And it reminds me of what the Lord Jesus said, that heaven and earth will pass away. But my word 
shall not pass away. And that's very comforting to us in these last days, that when we pick up the Bible, we know without a shadow of a doubt that it really is the word of the living God, and the archaeology, the discovery of these ancient texts demonstrate that the text has been faithfully copied by these scribes over the millennia. So to provide for us today with full assurance that you really are holding the word of the living God, the words that he spoke to Isaiah, the words that God spoke to Moses, we have that in our hands today. And that, my friends, that is very comforting in these troubled last days that we live in. It sure is. And uh, you're listening to Tom Meyer, Professor Tom Meyer, also known as the Bible Memory Man. He's got a ministry. He's located and working with the Ark in Kentucky. TheBibleMemoryMan.com. You can find him at that website if you want to book him in your church. He's got a vast knowledge, and he does. Uh, he and I have both worked in Israel for many years, been there together, uh, and, and uh, I know his uh, understanding of Scripture and archaeological sites and how it fits in and confirms for us that we are, <laughs> and not that we need the confirmation, but we are studying the Word of God that's been passed down through history to us today, the inspired Word of God. Tom, thank you so much for joining with us today, and I do want to talk to you about a church that's been found in Megiddo in the future, so we'll look forward to talking to you about that. Thank you, Jimmy. Well, that was Professor Tom Meyer, the Bible memory man, and uh, let me encourage you to go to his ministry, his website, and take a look, and uh, he gives us information about Israel, archaeological sites, and uh, what he does as far as understanding and memorizing the Word of God. Well, another man that I know that has a large portion of the Word of God memorized is a man uh, who's been on this program many times before. His website is proclaimingthegospel.org. Mike Gendron. Mike, welcome to the program today. Well, it's good to be back with you, Jimmy. We're living in very exciting times, and I believe the Bible has more to say about the times we live in now than any other epoch of time in human history. Amen. You know, and it's the Word of God that really gives us, taking that into our lives, gives us the comfort and that we need to live during these times, correct? Well, it really is, and for a Christian, it's really exciting times because we know that the Lord could come for His church at any moment. Mm. It's also a time that we need to be doing the Lord's business, and that is reaching the lost. You know, when Jesus was on the earth, He was here to seek and to save the lost, and then when He ascended into heaven, He passed the baton to His church. And so we're to seek after those who will never seek after the true God with the greatest news they'll ever hear. So hopefully your listeners are doing that, and that's what our ministry is about, proclaiming the gospel to the lost. Amen. And go to his website, proclaimingthegospel.org. Sign up for his newsletter. It's phenomenal, folks. It really is. But And Mike, one of the things that uh, on this week's newsletter that you have, or this month in April, uh, you're talking about the coming one world religion and, and what that's about. Man, I wish we had time to talk about what this one world religion that I believe began all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, Nimrod, Semiramis, uh, instituting that one world, uh, that mother-son cult, the cultic religion back then. But besides all that, I'm looking at now we're following the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the war, uh, and we see the Pope getting involved. Can you talk to us about who is the woman riding the beast and is the Pope consecrating Russia and Ukraine to marry? Well, he is. He just did that recently, and 
I don't really know the purpose of that, but you got to realize Pope Francis is the most influential false prophet in the world today. He's really part of the satanic trinity. You've got Satan as uh, the imposter of our Lord Jesus Christ and his adversary, and then you have Pope Francis as the leading spokesman for the satanic religion. And I don't say this to be offensive to Roman Catholics, but all we have to do is listen to what the Pope is saying, and you know he is not only disagreeing with the Bible, but also disagreeing with historic Roman Catholicism. But Jimmy, you're so right. We see the rebuilding of the religious Tower of Babel, and the Roman Catholic Church is the catalyst. A lot of people are not aware of Roman Catholic eschatology, but it is a all-millennial eschatology. Mm -hmm. Rome rejects the literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. It teaches that Jesus will not return to set up his kingdom until the whole world has been converted to Roman Catholicism. That's why you see an aggressive agenda to unite all religions together under the power and influence of the papacy. And then you see the Roman Catholic Church rejecting the rapture. The reason it does that is because it would conflict with its doctrine of purgatory. You see, if the dead in Christ will rise instantaneously and people are suffering in purgatory, they have to purge their sins away before they can be released, mm. and that would deny the rapture of the, the Church. And so for this reason, the Vatican's ongoing goal has been to unite the whole world under the papacy. And this goes back many, many years. In fact, you can look back to several of the popes, and they have all been pushing for this global agenda. But uh, when you look at Roman Catholic eschatology, we see that the papacy's historic goal, it was proclaimed by Pope Boniface VIII in actually 1302, many years ago, he said it's absolutely necessary for the salvation of every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. And then when you see Roman Catholic prophecies, they say the Pope will convert the world to Roman Catholicism, making it the only religion in the world. They also prophesy there will be a great Catholic monarch who will rule the whole world. And of course, we know that from Scripture to be the Antichrist. And then they go on to say prophetically that this Catholic monarch will work together with the Pope to usher in a period of enlightenment, peace, and prosperity. And Jimmy, I took this right off the CatholicProphecy.org website, so this is official Roman Catholic eschatology, and we can see all the players involved in this bringing it to fruition as we see the religions of the world coming together. In my last newsletter, I talked about the common bond between all the religions of the world is a works righteousness salvation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't realize it, but biblical Christianity stands apart from all the religions of the world, declaring that Jesus Christ was the all-sufficient Savior, and salvation is by grace alone and Christ alone. And the Roman Catholic Church, like every other religion in the world, teaches you must do things to appease a holy and righteous God, whether it be Muslims or Mormons or Buddhists or Hindus, they all speak of a works righteousness salvation. So this will be the common bond of this global religion and the rebuilding of the religious Tower of Babel. 
And we do see that taking place today, correct? I mean, as we are looking at basically a uniting and bringing together of world religions, it's all uh, work-based religion. Yeah, it really is. And of course, that denies the grace of God, because in Romans eleven six, the Apostle Paul said, if it is by grace, it is not of works. Mm. Otherwise, grace is not grace. Well, <laughs> Satan knows this, and so what does he do? He creates all of these religions that say you must do things to gain acceptance by God. That nullifies God's saving grace. And so everybody in all these religions of the world is perishing because they believe that they can do things to appease God rather than come to Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient Savior, which the Bible declares he is, entrusting God's grace to save them. And so we're living in a time where we really need to get the gospel out we need to proclaim the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and even many professing Christians, uh, whether it be Roman Catholics or Orthodox or Anglicans or Episcopalians, many Methodists, they believe that they must do things to appease God and to gain merit in order to enter into heaven. And so more than ever, we need to make sure we're proclaiming the exclusivity and the purity of the gospel of grace. Mike Gendron, uh, ProclaimingTheGospel.org is his website. Mike, thank you so much. I hope to have you back on again in the near future. I want to talk to you about the Abrahamic, uh, the House of Abraham in, uh, in Saudi Arabia and, and what significance that might be in the future. Yeah, that's really exciting to see that new development over there. And um, please have your listeners also call us at 817-379-5300. We'd love to share information with them to help them reach their lost loved ones that are perishing because they deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. So thanks, Jimmy, for having me on. Thank you, Mike, so much. Well, we've got to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy D. Young, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Prophecy Today, I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr., and along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And Rick, uh, this is the time that we always take where we introduce our website and uh, possibly some things that are contained there that people might be interested in. I'm really interested in our trips to Israel, but uh, what about our website and how can people find out about our trips to Israel? Well, Jimmy, we have quite a few CD series that you could purchase at our website uh, on many different subjects, including the subject that he's talking about right now. You can also, if you go to our website at prophecytoday.com, you can find out about our tours, the trips that we're taking to Israel as the country has opened back up. We are getting ready to have multiple trips, and we would love for you to join us. Yes, and we've got several coming up this year. Uh, those dates will be posted on our website, so keep an eye out for those. We would love to take you to Israel with us this year, and I think that you will find it fascinating. And For a lot of people, this is the trip of a lifetime. Well, as you said, Rick, this is the beginning of our Legacy Series. And as we continue our study of the series of Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, we come this week to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. It is the record of the fall of man. And it is so very important in our study of Bible prophecy. And as you'll see, it's very practical. So take your Bibles and turn to the third chapter of the book of Genesis and Dr. Jimmy D. Young. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God hath made. The serpent. You know who that was? A Satan. How do I know that? I read the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and verse 9, where it says, That old serpent, the devil and Satan. Was Satan actually a serpent? Or did he embody a serpent? Take possession of I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But Adam and Eve recognized him as a serpent. Was he walking on all four? I don't know. Did he have any legs? I don't know. But I do know after he caused Adam and Eve to sin, God said, you're going to wallow around on your belly the rest of your life. That's all I know, what the text says. And then he comes up to Eve. Hey, did God really say you can't eat of the trees in the garden? I'm not sure. So he started to use deception. His subtle approach of telling a half-truth. Hey, wait a minute, Eve. Do you really believe God is going to kill you when you eat? You think you're really going to die? Let me tell you what I think God's doing. He's giving you a rough time because he doesn't like you being as smart as he is. Why don't you just go over there and eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil? You'll be as smart as he is then. Then what did Eve say? Oh, she's starting to slip quickly. She said, well, God said, we can't eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we can't touch the tree. Uh, that's not what God said. He said you can't eat of it. He didn't say anything about touching it. So she's starting to slip. And ultimately she listens to these lies, this deception. What is he? What is Satan? John chapter 8 verse 22 says, He is the father of all liars. Second Corinthians chapter 11 says, He is an angel of light, so he comes and he deceives. And we buy into it. And Eve bowed into it. So she eats of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam, this is delicious. Come have a bite. He bites into it. All of a sudden, oh, Eve, you don't have any clothes on. Well, Adam, you don't either. You're standing there naked. And so he runs over and gets a fig leaf or some kind of leaf. I don't know. Maybe it's an oak leaf or something and covers himself. She does. They hide. It's about noontime, and Jesus is out for his daily walk, walking through the garden. Hey, Adam! Eve, where are you? Let's talk. We're over here, Jesus. What are you doing over there? We're hiding. Why are you hiding? We're naked. How do you know that? Oh, I know what's going on. And Jesus pronounces punishment. You see, Satan, he was the one who started the insurrection. What happened here, Adam and Eve? And Adam says, not my fault, Jesus. It's this woman that you gave me. And so Jesus looks at her, what happened, Eve? Not my fault, Jesus. This old snake over here told me to do it. Isn't that just like sin? Passing it along to somebody else. Never taking the credit for what you do wrong. So Jesus said, I tell you what, Eve, from now on, in childbirth, pain throughout all your generations. I can't describe it. I don't know what it is. Pain. And Adam, you're going to have to go to work. I provided everything. Now by the sweat of your brow, you're going to make a livelihood. And Satan, you're going to crawl around like a snake for the rest of your life. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Chapter 3, verse 15. I'm going to raise up a Messiah, a Savior. 
You might bruise his heel, but he's going to bust your head open. And indeed, that was the pronouncement of Jesus in the Garden of Eden. But that all sets the stage for an end time event. We have the institution or the inauguration of the Garden of Eden. Insurrection in the Garden. There's going to be invasion of the Garden of Eden in the last days. Go to Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah 51. Look there quickly with me. Isaiah chapter 51. Verse 3. Isaiah 51, 3. For the Lord shall comfort Zion, synonymous with Jerusalem. Shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all of the waste places and he will make her wilderness. Now the word like. The word like is not here either in the original Hebrew. The word is Edon. That's the word for Eden. And it says, so it should read, make her wilderness Eden and her desert, the word like again is not there in the Hebrew, the garden of the Lord. The word garden, Gan is there, Edon and Gan. No word for like. So that's just an interpolation. The translator put it in because they couldn't believe. Going to have the garden of Eden again. Go to the 36th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. You remember Ezekiel 36 is talking about the land. It's talking about the land in 35 different locations in here. And it says that God will bring them back into the land. Over here in verse 11, it says the land is going to be greater than it was for your forefathers. Look at chapter 36, verse 35. And they shall say this land that was desolate is become like is not in the text. That again is interpolation. And so the text should read, this land that was desolate, the Garden of Eden. Hey, listen, there shouldn't be any question. Don't you remember what Lot said when Abraham brought him down to the Jordan River, Jericho Valley? He said, hey, Lot, which piece of real estate do you want? I'll take the other. Which do you want? He said, I want this right here. It looks like the Garden of Eden. Of course, that's what it was. It's what it had been. It was still beautiful, even at that time. And so it says... This is the Garden of Eden. Go to Joel chapter 2. The book of Joel is talking about the day of the Lord. It introduces that phrase used 72 times in the Bible. The day of the Lord is any time in history when God intercedes in the affairs of man personally on the earth. In chapter 1 of the book of Joel, it's talking about a locust invasion of the land. That's historic. Starting in chapter 2, it's prophetic using that as a backdrop. Look here in verse 2. Remember, a day starts with what? It starts with the night and then the day. Okay, look what it says here in verse 2. A day of darkness at night, of gloominess, a, dark, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. Now notice, a great people and a strong there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them. This is a mighty militia that's going to be formed. Notice what it says here. The fire devoureth before them and behind them a flame burneth. That's how a forest fire goes through a forest. The big flames and then the little flickering flames afterwards. Notice where it's going. And to the land look is as the is in italics. That means it's interpolation, not interpretation. So it should read, and the flame burneth the garden of Eden before them. What's it talking about? A mighty militia that will be formed to go to the garden of Eden. Wow. In the last days. Oh, the garden of Eden. Temple Mount, city of Jerusalem. 
Hey, the Jews are not the only ones that believe that. I want to tell you, I was interviewing Sheikh Sabri, the Mufti of the city of Jerusalem, the most powerful Islamic cleric in the area. He was sitting in his office just off of the Temple Mount. I was asking him, has there ever been a Jew on the Temple Mount, Sheikh? He said, no, never a Jew on the Temple Mount. Boy, that ticked me off. I wanted to get in his face. I wanted to talk about Isaac taking, I mean, Abraham taking Isaac to Mount Moriah. I wanted to talk about David buying that threshing floor from Ornan the Jebusite. I wanted to talk about King Solomon building that temple. I wanted to talk about Zerubbabel building the second temple. I wanted to talk about Jesus Christ who, as a Jew, preached on the Temple Mount and healed on the Temple Mount. I wanted to get in his face. And then I looked at his bodyguards. Six eight two ninety apiece. I determined that wasn't the proper time to get in the Mufti's face. But I said, sir, you're telling me there's never been a Jew on the Temple Mount? He said, absolutely not. And he said, that Temple Mount out there, he calls it Alaksa. That Alaksa dates back to Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. Islam believes the Temple Mount's the Garden of Eden. You start reading Islamic literature. The Mahdi. The Muslim Messiah will appear. He will go to Jerusalem and set up the caliphate. The caliphate, the world dominion, the world kingdom. And a mighty militia from Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 to 45. King of the north, Syria, who's perched at Israel's northern border. King of the south, Egypt, who's ready to come in with the largest Arab nation in the world. Antichrist defeats him. Study Daniel eleven forty to 45. Ezekiel 38 intercedes. Magog! Magog. Gog in the land of Magog. Magog's the land. You know where Magog comes from? Why, Magog was the firstborn son of Jepheth, grandson of Noah. Genesis chapter 10, verse 2. And you know what? He went to some place, Genesis 10, 5, raised a family, developed a language, and started a nation. That's where nations come from. Tenth chapter of the book of Genesis, after the flood. Oh, by the way, he had some brothers. You know what their names were? Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma. Oh, Magog went north of the Caspian Sea. That's modern-day Russia. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Nagarma stayed below the Caspian and Black Sea. That's modern-day Turkey. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, they're going to come. Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey, an Islamic fundamentalist. They're going to attack. Oh, there's going to be some more. Chapter 38, verse 5, you know who Persia is? Until 36, they were, 1936, they were... Persia, but today they're Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. Kush, Ethiopia, Somalia, and Sudan. Put, Libya. Over in the 83rd Psalm, you know what it says? The Ishmaelites, that's modern-day Saudi Arabia. Tyre, that's modern-day Lebanon. These nations are going to form an alliance, and they're going to bring the coalition, a mighty army that's never been formed in the history of the world, into Jerusalem. This mighty militia, made up of Muslims from around the world, will come to Jerusalem, the Garden of Eden, to set up a worldwide kingdom, a caliphate, 
in the place where the devil used his subtle strategy against Adam and Eve some 6,000 years ago. With this coalition of nations aligning themselves against the Jewish state of Israel, once again the devil is trying to take control of the world from the Garden of Eden, which is the center of the world. However, this time the Lord will intercede and totally wipe out this attacking enemy of the Jewish people. In essence, the Muslim world will be rendered inoperative as foretold in the prophetic book of Ezekiel, where the ancient Jewish prophet pre-wrote history to tell of the demise of the enemies of Israel. You can read this account in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 18, through chapter 39, verse 6. Next week on our program of Bible study, we will return to the book of Genesis and study about the event of the worldwide flood as recorded in Genesis chapters 6, 7, and 8. We'll study the significance of this historic event, the worldwide flood, as it relates to Bible prophecy. That's Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. Let me remind you, if you're interested in purchasing any of our CD series, you can go to our website, prophecytoday.com, and pick those up. We'll be right back with a look at the book, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. On Sunday, the Pakistani parliament brought a no-confidence motion to unseat Prime Minister Imran Khan. But Nehemiah with FMI says Khan's allies blocked the vote. Khan dissolved parliament and called for new elections. But yesterday, Pakistan's Supreme Court ruled that these actions were unconstitutional. Parliament must reconvene and hold the no-confidence vote on Saturday. Pray for stability in Pakistan and ask God to comfort many with the hope of Jesus. And some of the world's most difficult places to follow Christ are in the Middle East, North Africa region. The Program for Theological Education by Extension, or PTEE, trains church leaders in these countries. Executive Director Victor Sadek says by studying online, believers can avoid unwanted attention, which often leads to persecution. The ministry is building a mobile platform in 2022. Pray the Lord would bring PTEE the workers and funding it needs for the project. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And Rick, uh, when we see the things that are going on in the world, when we see what's happening, uh, I know that our lineup of questions and the answers that we got today from our broadcast partners 
does show that the world is totally in an upheaval and ready for an end-time event of which we're prepared for, which is the rapture of the church. That's right, Jimmy. As we talk to our broadcast partners and we see some of the events that they are commenting on, and we're looking, especially you started off with Ken Timmerman, and you saw how he was talking about uh, Russia expanding and growing their relationship in the Middle East, not only with Iran, but potentially with other Middle Eastern partners, which is a page right out of Bible prophecy. Yes. Uh, You know, the interesting thing to me, and as I said it last week, uh, sometimes we see what's taking place in Russia and we understand that, wow, this is not the mighty army that we saw, but they are still very much involved. And we do see that alignment of nations. And I do think it will take an alignment of nations that will turn against Israel in the end times. And that's what we're looking at. Uh, We've talked about it many times when uh, we keep our eyes, the things that we keep our eyes on on in Bible prophecy, the return of the Jewish people to the land, the alignment of nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38, uh, Daniel 11, Psalm 83, the anticipation for peace, uh, really the one world leader that's gonna, that needs to come on the scene to set the pace to take control, and, and then, of course, the arrangements for a temple, uh, which uh, a lot of people have a problem with, mostly those 220 million Muslims that surround the country of Israel. Talking with Winky Madad and Dave Dolan, we talked about Israeli politics. I want to be careful to let people know this is not a program that specifically is devoted to Israeli politics, but the things that are taking place in Israel, the things that are taking place in the Israeli government are facilitating a kind of a chessboard of movements around the Middle East. We want to remember to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and all the things that are taking place there right now. Yes, yeah, so we do see Bible prophecy as it will be fulfilled, especially in Ezekiel chapter 37. It does talk about two Jewish states in the future. We see a conflict uh, where here you have religious parties, you have liberal parties, you have people that see things that should go one way. And we do see that uh, in the future there will be two Jewish states that will be separated That hasn't happened in history. That will take place during the tribulation period. And those two Jewish states will be reunited as one Jewish state again. And that will happen at the end of that seven-year period of time described by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, that seven-year period of time, the tribulation. So that's why we keep our eyes on the political scene of what is taking place in Israel. Well, Jimmy, I do think that's very interesting. And as we're getting ready to commemorate Easter and what took place there in fulfilled prophecy almost 2,000 years ago. We talked with Tom Meyer, and he talked 75 years ago, the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I know, Jimmy, I've heard you talk about it on location many times before. This was like God putting his stamp on the young nation of Israel that had been brought back together. Yeah, it was interesting how these old manuscripts there, over 900 manuscripts, when you look at it, Uh, There's not one contradictory word uh, that uh, is in those manuscripts that is in the same copy of the Word of God that we read today. And that really does help us to understand how this Word that we receive, that we read, that we follow through and through is the same yesterday, today, and will be uh, very relevant for tomorrow. 
And of course, Jimmy, it was always good to talk with Mike Gendron, a good friend of ours and uh, somebody who always keeps us informed of Catholic ideology and eschatology. Yes. You know, the one world church that will come in when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he gives power and he's going to use that one world church to accomplish his will with the false prophet. And we see that being set forth in today's eschatology for and some of these churches that are coming together that uh, really are anti what God has said in the scriptures. Um, and it's something that a lot of people are following. It is a false religion and uh, soon there will be a false prophet in that tribulation period. And we do see that taking place. And it is important that we continue uh, giving people the true gospel message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we want to focus on. I mean, so much of this program is focused on prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. But of course, we also look at the prophetic portions of Scripture in the Old Testament that were fulfilled at the coming of Jesus Christ. And we're looking at it at this time of the year. We're talking about tomorrow being Palm Sunday. And I don't know, you and I have spent a lot of our life on the traditional route of Palm Sunday. I remember the sights and the smells and the sounds and everything that took place right there on the Mount of Olives. Yes, and we recount that story, that trip, where on that day people were singing, this is the day that the Lord hath made. That's Psalm 118.24, where it's talking about the Messiah, the one to come. And people were looking at Jesus Christ to overthrow the Roman government, to set up his kingdom. That was prophesied, Daniel prophesied it in Daniel chapter 9, when he talked about the Messiah was going to become to be cut off. This is the beginning of that week. Zechariah talked about it. This trip that began, where did it begin? Well, it could have began six months earlier when Jesus Christ up at Caesarea Philippi told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified. No longer will I offer the kingdom. I'm going to be crucified. Or it could have began 500 years earlier where Daniel talked about it and Zechariah talked about the coming of the Messiah. Of course, as Dr. Jimmy DeYoung today talked about in Genesis chapter 3, that the first prophecy in the scriptures was that the Messiah would come, and he eventually did, and that's what we're celebrating this week. So as we celebrate Palm Sunday and we begin to look at that Passion Week next week, we'll be talking about Passover, and we'll be talking about the events that took place in which Jesus Christ fulfilled all those prophecies, Rick, as you said throughout the Bible, that we will look at that's what gives us the confidence to understand that the prophecies in the future are going to take place exactly as they are fulfilled. Well, thanks, Rick, for joining with us today and for asking those tough questions of our broadcast partners and getting the information so that we could educate and edify the body of Christ. So glad to be able to do it, Jimmy, and excited to look at fulfilled prophecy as we continue to look forward to fulfillment of prophecy in the future. Well, that's it for today's program. We look forward to joining with you next week when we celebrate the most important event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything in the past pointed to that event, and everything in the future will point back to the event of Easter. Well, we'll see you next week on the radio right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.